Hello, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to The Lending Bean, a fresh show by Findu centered around the theme of effortless lending. We're glad you decided to join us. In this episode, I'm talking to Jamie Burink, Olaf Tendaus, and Chris Skinner, subject matter experts on embedded finance, among many other things. We'll take a close look at subjects such as SME loans, software solutions for lending, and the mysterious world of invisible banking. This show is being recorded from Finnovate Europe at the Intercontinental Hotel in London. We're sitting here at the edge of the River Thames. The sun is shining. It's a wonderful location. This is the event where many financial institutions meet cutting-edge finance. You may hear some of the atmospheric hustle and bustle in the background, and hopefully you'll also feel some of the creative electricity which is all around us. This is The Lending Beam. Hello. My name's Mike Cooper, and I'm your host for this podcast, and I'm very pleased to be joined by Jamie Burning, Olaf Tendaus, and Chris Skinner. Olaf Tendaus is an innovation, technology, and accelerator veteran with experience in venture capital investing and growth strategy as well. He's currently a management team member at New Horizons, which is a 60-person strong Rabobank innovation lab centered around embedded finance. Olaf's team believes that the future of SME finance growth lies in third-party channels, and his team's primary challenge is scaling Rabobank's product suite through embedded channels. Great you could make it, Olaf. Happy to be here. My second guest is Jamie Burning, who is business head at Findu, which is an end-to-end software-as-a-service lending platform and part of Dutch digital platform solutions provider Topicus. Jamie's background lies in the corporate finance, risk management, loan origination, and management consultancy, and he has a passion for closing the lending gap. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you very much, Mike. Our third guest is often described by the name Mr. Fintech. Chris Skinner is an independent commentator on the financial markets through his blog, thefinancer.com. He's also a self-confessed troublemaker, author of 14 books, a conference speaker. He hosts the weekly podcast, Fintech Insider, has a new podcast called FU, and he's also a non-executive director director of 11FS. His latest book, Digital for Good, published last year, presents a global view of the state of the financial and technology spaces and how they impact and improve our world. Welcome, Chris. Extremely glad that you could make it. Hi, Mike, and F you. (laughs) Fintech Uncut. Fintech Uncut. Just, Just to clarify. Just in case you didn't get the reference. Thanks a lot. Before we go drilling down into today's topic of embedded lending, um, we have a little tradition on this podcast. We have a quick fire round, and we'd like to know our guests' warm beverage habits, as this is the lending bee tradition. So, in the morning, is it for you, Olaf, coffee, or is it tea? For me, it's a very straightforward uh, a black coffee. Black Always. coffee. Very traditional. How about you, Jamie? I'll uh, join uh, Olaf. I'm, uh, I'm a very uh, coffee addict. Coffee addicted, but what type of coffee? Are we talking cappuccino, frappuccino? No, just a straightforward black, strong. Yeah. And Mr. Skinner? I'm boring, I just like still water. Excellent. Right, also, we're here at Finnovate, and we've been looking at a lot of, the, a lot of demos and a lot of innovation that's been taking place here. So I, w- I want to do a little round-the-table uh, Q&A to find out what you've seen here at Finnovate, which has caught your eye or, or you think is, is, is particularly interesting. Um, perhaps I could go to you first, Chris, to see what, what have you heard or seen that, that, has, that has caught your eye? I think it's um, an interesting moment of time in that a lot of fintech companies are going through a very hard time. They're laying off staff, which they haven't ever done before, and they're finding it struggles to get investments. Having said that, there's a few standout areas um, in that I believe 
we'll still see quite a lot of the crypto companies coming back, um, which some people might question. And um, for me in particular, I think it comes to some of the companies that are doing things that break the banking mold. I always say to fintech companies, you should do what banks don't do or fix what banks do that's broken. And don't try and compete head-to-head with a bank because that's typically going to fail long-term. Although when we talk about challenger banks and near banks, you might, might say, oh, you're wrong there, Chris. But it's very difficult to break the mold of the banking industry. It's much easier to break the mold of what banks do badly. And that's where the focus. So, you know, right now the hottest area for me is the B2B space. Right. And um, B2B payments, B2B lending, the whole nature of how the ecosystem of businesses and companies can work together. One of the big things the Americans talk about, and it's not a phrase I have heard until recently, is um, the office of the CFO. And so... It's everything to do with treasury and FX and payments and B2B uh, operations, applying the fintech community to that focus of space rather than to the the consumer side. Great. I like that one. Olaf, how about you? What have you seen or heard that's taken your fancy? Um, Yeah, well, I saw saw many interesting things. So one thing which was, for me, quite interesting was the presentation of Stephen van Bellingham. And I think he... He was very clear that uh, we all talk about technology and out embedded, but that the most important thing is also thinking about the user experience and the user value that you can create. Uh, and, and, and I'm quite focused within the B2B lending. And also there, we should not forget that I think it is all about the user experience and the user value that you can create. Uh, besides thinking about technology and embedded, but really the value. And I think that's something I took out of it yesterday. And later we had, a, in the, in the yeah, end of the day, we had a panel discussion about embedded finance. And also realization was there that we are really early there. Also, so if you talk to other banks that they're starting in embedded lending and also well, the conclusion of the, of the session was that probably when we really will see the real traction there, that it will probably take another few years uh, and not right now and that a lot of banks are also they, they want to see quite early return on investment already and that's also a challenge in yeah, so these are quite a few things that i took away there jamie how about you what have you seen um for me in particular i was very interested into the tech side of uh, finovate of course um and what we feel on a day-to-day basis is that i think financial institutions are uh, playing catch-up with the regulator right so uh, for example, what we see on the customer onboarding side of doing financial services is becoming quite, well, um, yeah, difficult. So uh, what we see currently is that the traditional lending process, for example, is more expensive currently than customer onboarding like AML and KYC and, uh, and all the things that you have to do over there. And what I was very happy to see over here is that clients onboarding uh, tech providers uh, is becoming more mature. And I think that's uh, a big catch for me at, uh, at Finnovate. Oh, cool. Well, thanks for th- sharing those, uh, those insights that you've seen on the floor of, this, uh, of the event. When we are preparing this podcast, Olaf. You talked about um, embedded lending as being lending on steroids. Now, is that legal 
first of all, and perhaps you could explain what do you what do you what do you mean by that, and what are you working on at, at, at New Horizons regarding embedded lending? Yeah, so so yeah, I, I actually I, I I got the quote from uh, from another fintech that we that we spoke to when we uh, when yeah, when we uh, had a discussion about embedded lending, which I really liked, uh, and and if it's it's legal, I think it's definitely legal, but you need to be put it in the right context. I think within embedded lending, uh, the potential what you have when you work with third-party platforms is actually to uh, to facilitate a really, really great user experience and really by creating value, by sharing data. Uh, and that's the potential of embedding uh, lending on steroids. And that doesn't mean to push out as many loans as you, as you like, but to really offer a loan exactly there and when a certain SME needs it. And I think that's the real value where we get to because if you embed a lending proposition via a platform, that's one thing. But using information together with the platform to really think, okay, how can we make the user experience better? Then you can start really offering the loan when it's really, really relevant. Uh, by, Could you by give like an example? Well, if you if you look, for example, if you take data on, on how inventory is, is 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 going, if inventory is getting low, then you then you know, right? Uh, there needs to be an, uh, an, an, an uh, a reorder. So, maybe so this would be for sorry to interrupt you, but this would be for a company, right? For a small, for a company, for a small business. business. So yeah, I'm yeah. always talking from uh, from the, because we are focused on on SMEs, and I think that's the real value, and I think. That will also enable higher conversion, and then maybe yeah, lending in storage is a little bit controversial, but I think that will really increase the adoption also of embedded lending. That's that's how, how, how I see it. Right, what's your view, Chris? I'm going to be up front and say, first of all, I hate the term embedded. Ah. And I think it's a inside-out view. It's an industry insider view of trying to make things simple, whether it's embedded payments or embedded lending. And... Um, the problem I have with it uh, um, is that from a customer's view, it's invisible lending and, and invisible payments, which on the one hand sounds great. On the other hand, has a lot of pitfalls or caveats. And if the customer gets into uh, loans that they didn't realize that they could not afford, then you have to raise the bar over those and make sure that that's an alert that the customer understands. And I've said for some time that, you know, give it a few years from now, we will not even think about banking and payments and lending. We'll just live our lives and it will all take place through our apps and devices. Right. Um, and the main thing is to make sure that the user, whether it's a small business, big business or consumer, is alerted when they're actually... Um, swiping or taking things that they can't afford and so that's to me the, the, the main caveat and in fact a good example is I was speaking at the conference yesterday about Silicon Valley Bank and yeah. that's the mistake they made that they invested in a lot of illiquid assets long-term mortgage securities that right. they couldn't cash in when customers wanted their money back and to personalize that it's a bit like me when my school says that you need to pay the fees for your kids to go to school mm -hmm. and you weren't expecting that to come through and then you realize you can't get to liquidate assets to pay them right but isn't this like normal lending isn't this always the way that you've got to be careful about your customers and right now we're talking about more like the tooling that goes behind modern banking isn't that but, but i think it raises the big question around financial literacy and financial education 
Right. And, you know, Which is very important, of It's course. fantastic to have embedded lending, imbe- embedded payments, embedded finance. But if you're not educated and literate in how to manage your money, yeah. then people will get into trouble. And yeah. that's a, a concern I have. At the same time, on the other hand, I think it's fantastic if we make the whole convenience of the system one where you don't have to think about the bank or the money. I totally agree. And and it is all about convenience. So within Rabobank, we are, I think, one of the biggest uh, pillars or like where we always are challenged on and where our models are also trained on is duty of care because that's this financial well-being. So we are not allowed and it's also definitely something we don't want to do is push a loan to someone that should not get a loan. Uh, that's the first priority we want to help our customers. But for using data to know which customers really need it and can actually grow faster and have really benefits of it. That's where the, the value is. But of course, you always need to be very careful careful how to do it. Yeah. Chris, wanted to say something? I've got a great story, which you, you'll relate to. Um, this is actually going back almost a decade ago, so it's very early days in the fintech revolution. But um, you, you may remember, Mike, a company called Wonga. I do, but only vaguely. It's payday loans. Right. And when yeah. they came into the Polish markets, and I live in Poland, so right. it's quite personal, um, the banks were quite worried about the impact they would have because they could give a loan in you know, under 15 minutes. Right, so that was the concept, was basically you, you, you got a loan within 15 minutes of applying for it. Yeah, and um, it's all around uh, algorithmic, algorithmic metrics that looked at your postcode and your profile. Um, but M-Bank, which is one of the most dynamic banks in Poland in the, the technology space, were very worried about what that would mean for their customers. And so the guy who was leading the technology side of mobile banking in M-Bank said to the head of risk and credit, uh, I want to give customers loans in less than 60 seconds. <laughs> that seems insane. <laughs> well, it was, but they... When you think about it, and th- they ended up doing it, really, it, it it's actually reasonable. And I'll be interested in what you think, Olaf, because basically um, the head of credit said that's insane. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then then they thought about it and thought, well, we know the profile of our customers. You know who they are already. We, we know their track record, their history, and their credit risk right. profiles. So what we can do is dynamically in real time give them a credit line in an, in the app for our banking services that right. says right now you're good for 5000 euros or 1000 euros or whatever it was yeah. just swipe if you want to take that credit um now as i say you have to bear in mind you need to t- inform the customer the risk that goes around if you swipe and yeah. take and take that loan but um, if you did do that, and they still do this today, then you literally got the money in your account in, in less than 60 seconds. It's that key thing that if, if you know your customer, then A, you can give them a service that's convenient with a swipe to get a loan or whatever you need straight away within less than 60 seconds. Yeah. But what you need to do, and that's the caveat I was saying earlier, is that you need to inform them of what risk they're taking if they do that. Yeah. I would like to, to step in, Chris, yeah, go because for it, sure. I'm very curious about your take on... Um, well, this is almost like pushing a loan, right, from a uh, financial service provider perspective. And I, m- well, you might be- may believe that that's a bit of a controversial thing in lending. W- what's your take on that part? It, it's, it's, it's a difficult line. Uh, you know, there's a balance. And I remember um, 
talking to one journalist some years ago and she was saying that the retail banks were like the drug providers of credit you know the the poisoned pill pushers of credit yeah. credit lines um which you know you, banks and financial institutions make money by providing credit leveraging deposits yep uh, sure. that's the basic business model but what you have to do is do that with ethics and every now and again i think we've seen that the the ethical banking the moral compass of banking has been lost um and i've talked about this quite a lot because i feel banks need to have a moral purpose they they need to have a clear um sort of balance between shareholder return and stakeholder return and quite a lot of banks have lost that in the last 15 years so rabobank from or origin has always been very locally very a community bank really active and, and there where the customer needs it and that's also really in line with embedded or embedded we should not use the term anymore but really <laughs> uh, but really no but really being there where uh, an SME or a customer needs it. And that's the, the value what you want to create. And of course, there's a, a soft line and you should always be very clear. And it's also where, where I'm always challenged from, from yeah, compliance, legal risk within the bank, like that we have the right copy, that we have the right messaging, that you are, do inform about the risk, what, what are the purposes for. But there's always for us the purpose to help the SME to do growth when, when he needs it. Um, and, and to get back to your questions, like are fintechs maybe doing that better? I would, in, in that extent, kind of disagree in some extent if I, if I talk to some partners, at least that work with other fintechs. We sometimes also hear that they are uh, widely, more widely accepting uh, customers, uh, taking in that extent a little bit more risk, but also having much higher interest rates, uh, which we are actually not allowed. So uh, we, we have very strict rules on that and what, what, what interest rates we are allowed to, to ask. Um, where you see that some fintechs uh, do that and also hear right. stories that then customers get into default, right? Get into a problem. And I, I think that's also the advantage that we could have as a bank is that we that we are really well in, 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 in doing the, the risk uh, risk models within Rabobank. I mean, you talk, talked about giving out a loan. So we are focused on 200,000 euros. That's what we are allowed to give a loan in that amount. Uh, and we do the whole risk uh, model based on transaction data. So the, the only, all, one of the things that we need is 12 months of transaction data. Uh, and we build a, a model on that based on all the SMEs that we serve to see whether this customer should be able to get that loan and what, what amount. Right. So that's quite, quite responsible. Sounds relatively, you yeah. know, relatively okay, rather than uh, uh, a quick loan to somebody who possibly can't afford it. Yeah. Invisible banking, uh, what what's that? I mean, do you have a do, what's do you, what's invisible banking for you, Jamie? Well, I think invisible banking is about being there where your clients need you, right? At, at point of sale or maybe on uh, digital shopping or wherever you need a financial service provider, uh, they are there, but you don't even know that they are there. I think that's typically describing invisible banking. But isn't this isn't this a thing, uh, like Chris was just saying, basically, isn't the moment that we're in right now, there seems to be a transformation where you've got a lot of tech companies on the one side and you've got the incumbents on the other, and they're kind of meeting each other and, 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 and checking each other out with these different types of service. Isn't it going to be this, aren't they going to be one thing in the end? I think you take it a step further, which is we're reinventing the industry right. with technology. Um, and... 
the fact that most banks were built with a business model based on physicality and an analogue structure is the biggest challenge for most banks to how to transform that into a digital data structure that's uh, on the network. And what you end up with, and we will end up with at some point, is a financial system that's just like electricity. It's just you plug in and it works. Right, that's the invisible part, right? You don't even know it's there. Uh, I mean... Who do you think of when you plug your laptop in or <laughs> yeah, I don't, in? I don't have a brand yeah. in my mind. Yeah. You know. Who's providing that power? You, yeah. you don't think about it. No, yeah. right. And so that's what banking becomes. Yeah. Um, but as I say, it has to come with the caveats and the precautions that I've mentioned already, which is the alerts for when you're exposed or you're at risk. Yeah. Well, that's, that brings us excellently on to our next item, which is the dilemma round. So I'm going to say, I give you a dilemma, and then you can all three react to it to see what you think. The dilemma is as follows. BNPL, so buy now, pay later, which is often uh, used as a synonym for embedded lending. So buy now, pay later is a last resort for people who cannot afford it. I think that for a long time that was very true. It was kind of the last resort to, uh, well, to to take out your services or do the shopping or uh, whatever. However, a, I think a big, sh- big shift is going on over there. And my reality check uh, was that uh, someone who's really close to me was buying a car, uh, uh, paid by borrowed money. And uh, since he was very close to me, I know that he was perfectly able to, uh, to, um, well, to buy it from his own funds. To afford it. So to he had the money, it. basically. He had the money. However, he took out a loan. And I think that's also a generational thing, right? But... As for him, it was a very convenient product. And that was uh, the moment that I thought, well, it's no longer the last resort. It's also maybe uh, becoming financial savvy. It's not, he was not embarrassed to tell it at me, so to right. tell me about it. So um, I, I'm raised by only buying things when you have the money. That's how my parents raised me. Right. Uh, however, the corporate finance, Jamie, is thinking about, yeah, if you see corporate finance, which is all about net present value and uh, leveraging capital, yeah, then buy now, pay later, or uh, invisible banking, or uh, whatever, how you w- want to call it, is well, maybe a smart financial savvy uh, thing. I would ag- agree what you were saying. So I'm also raised, if you cannot afford something, you should not buy it and, 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 and not take a loan. And I think there's a difference... Because I think in, in the B2C space, I think it's difficult because it's very easily available. So that means, uh, and, and that's when you talk about ethics, about uh, education and, and financial well-being, it's accessible for everyone. So how do you make sure that the people that are not, uh, not educated in that sense and, and, and should not get it still can get access? That's, of course, the difference. Yeah, the dilemma. Yeah, and I think, I think uh, and now there's a shift. I mean, you see also now more and more, more happening in the B2B space where this issue can be covered more by, by having your risk models in place and then, and, and then doing eligibility checks, which is maybe better for B2B than in the B2C case. Right, thanks. Chris, what's your take on it? I actually think buy now, pay later is an area where a lot of misunderstandings have occurred. Okay. And the reason I say that is that, um, to me, it's a good innovation in providing the ability to um, do something on credit that's networked in a way that hasn't been provided before. I've always rallied against the cry for bullying buy now, pay later or saying it's bad because Mm. um, credit cards, 
you know, you get interest rates of 23.9% or whatever APR on credit cards. And we don't say that that's bad. So right. what's wrong with buy now, pay later? For me, uh, and specifically if I look at Klarna, who I've known for a long time, who are the leaders in this space, right? Um, because they invented it pretty much. It, I think they started 2006. So right. it's, it's quite an old company. Yeah, yeah they've been around. Um, and they've gone to the American markets. They're succeeding worldwide. They're actually not a buy now, pay later company, which is what people say they are. Okay. They are a company that's enabling commerce in the same way as Amazon does or right. any, any other of the big tech companies does. It's enabling people to um, you know, consume in a way that's far easier than we've ever had before. And yes, there's exposures and risk there, but if you think of them as a enabling platform right. for commerce rather than buy now, pay later, then you get a different perspective. Right, so we're going to kick out the term buy now, pay later as well. So we have no embedded <laughs> and no buy now, pay later. <laughs> this is excellent. Maybe we can kill all the subjects as we go through the podcast. Um, I think during our conversation we were talking about, you know, is there a difference between uh, uh, Europe and the West, the US and Asia as to how they view um, buy now, pay later? Um, I think it's very different. Um, uh, we, we are quite active in, in Asia as well and... Um, and the first time I saw sort of embedded services um, is that they also um, uh, have their, their banking tech, like a mobile banking app or whatever, yeah. and they connect um, uh, platforms to their banking app. And at the first point I saw, when I saw that, I, I thought, what's the deal? Why uh, should I go to my bank when doing my shopping or whatever? But, but later on, I thought, well, that's, that's a very uh, smart thing, right? Because then you, you're getting close to your clients. And... Yeah, in fact, it's also what, what Klarna currently does with uh, uh, Klarna Spotlight, I guess. So I think it's a very smart way. Um, back in, in Europe, I think, uh, financial institutions are offering their services by means of APIs or whatever to the platform. So it's the other way around, I guess, over there. Right. Did any of you guys, uh, Olaf or Chris, do you have uh, any insights into cultural differences within the lending space? I mean, I travel uh, around the world a lot. In my experience... Two big issues. One is that a lot of people talk about the world as a homogenous place. Right. And actually, every country has a different attitude to money and lending and payments. And a good example is Germany, in that there's a very big difference between northern Germany, southern Germany, eastern Germany, western Germany. Um, and the reason why I pick on Germany is that the northern Germans are more like the Dutch. And you know, the Western Germans, like the French, the Eastern Germans, more like sort of, uh, Central Eastern Europe and Southern, the Italians. And every part of the country has a different attitude towards contactless payments right. and um, the use of loans and lending. Um, and the same is true if you look at um, China. So China, for example, historically has been a nation of savers. Right. Um, and they are starting to take loans, but their attitude to lending is very different to Europe and America. Um, and the same is true of the use of technology. Um, so, as I mentioned, contactless payments um, across Germany, for example. Um, you know, one thing stood out for me during the pandemic is that Germans are very distrusting of being tracked and traced in right. what they do. So, very high cash usage which did go down during the pandemic, but it's now gone back to where it was because 
they believe that you know we don't want the government to know what we're doing. So there are very big cultural differences yeah, fascinating. In, uh, across the world, and, and you can't treat it as a homogenous space. Olaf. Yeah, no, I just, uh, especially on Germany, so I lived in, in Berlin uh, for eight and a half years, and that's especially what you see there, the cash uh, issue. And that's, of course, uh, it, it has its, its reasons from history that they are really there exactly on privacy. And I think, uh, I, I don't know that much example cases, but I, I, know, I know because we, we have one contact who's more specialist on, on, on China or Eastern <laughs> or Asian uh, uh, a fintech, they are m- much more advanced there, right, in having everything connected and, and data, so that's there are trends there, where yeah. I think we can learn from, but also in, with some limitations, maybe. Well, I'm afraid we've come to the end of the show. Oh, there you go. That's it for this edition. We hope you enjoyed the discussion on embedded lending, which we cannot call embedded lending anymore, uh, as much as we have. We're here on the Thames, it's great. Uh, I'd like to say thanks a lot to all of our guests, Jamie Burling, Thank you. Olaf Tendaz. Thank you. And Chris Skinner. Thanks, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for, for joining us. This podcast was brought to you by Findu, an end-to-end software-as-a-service lending platform. That's all from me for this episode. Check out the show notes if you'd like more information. We'll hope you'll follow, like, and five-star rate The Lending Bean. And don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Meanwhile, stay safe and stay solvent. We hope you'll join us again for the next edition of The Lending Bean. Thank you.